waves already Hello, and welcome to Epistemic Unruliness on the Always Already Podcast. This is John, and to realize very quickly, I'm not James Padaleone Jr. Uh, James has been traveling, doing some field research, so I'm, I'm stepping into the Epistemic Unruliness chair. And uh, you may have also noticed we've been a bit tardy with our, with our text discussion episodes, but I promise one of those is coming to you soon, hopefully early next week if all goes well. I've had some scheduling problems here in New York City. Um, I'm so excited for this episode. I'm so excited to be doing this um, interview that you're about to hear with a friend of the podcast, my friend um, Izzy Broomfield, who is serving with AmeriCorps Vista in eastern Kentucky. And the conversation you're going to be listening to soon is kind of wide-ranging. And we hear some about of the community service work he's doing. We talk about place. We talk about Misty Mountains. We talk about bell hooks, about translation, about the theory-practice divide and its discontents, and a whole lot more. So I was really excited to do this interview and to talk with Izzy, uh, who has met B&I in person, even though we have always live very far apart. You're going to have to listen to the whole episode to hear that story. So in the meantime, um, you shouldn't be worried about Izzy living up to the to the pedigree and wondrousness of our previous epistemic unruliness uh, interviewees. But you might worry a little bit about me living up to James's excellence as the epistemic unruliness interviewer. But nonetheless, I hope that you enjoy this episode, and uh, we'll be back at you soon. now talking with Izzy Broomfield. They are an itinerant Kentuckian currently working on a public service, set of public service projects, I should say, um, in eastern Kentucky. And Izzy is also a friend of the podcast. Izzy, thank you for coming on the Always Already podcast, Epistemic Unruliness. Howdy, everybody, and thanks so much for having me, John. It's it's great to be a part of such a great podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. And the, the audience should know that one of the reasons that I'm very excited about doing this is that I think, Izzy, you are maybe the only podcast fan outside of the New York area that I have met in person. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yes. And it we, was such an incredible way that we met. I know. <laughs> I you, should, you, should, you should tell the story of, of how that happened, because the audience isn't here to listen to me. They're here when they want to hear about Izzy, so you, sure. we'll get going that way. I would love to tell that story. So fast forward to earlier this year. It's 2015, and I'm doing a previous AmeriCorps service project called NCCC, the National Civilian Community Corps. Um, they send me out to Sacramento. I travel around the West Coast with a team of seven complete strangers working with a lot of really great organizations um, trying to get things done, uh, team-based national service. It was an incredible experience, but a lot of it was uh, very labor-intensive, outdoorsy type stuff, so I felt kind of alienated from my academic background, and I end up uh, Googling 
podcasts and finding the Always Already podcast, which says something about critical theory. And I think, <laughs> perfect, this is just the podcast for me. So um, the setting is I'm on the West Coast. I'm uh, planting native species, removing invasive species right by the Pacific Ocean. I've never been there before. It's beautiful. I'm using my body in service to this great country, and I'm listening to these incredibly brilliant people <laughs> who are wrapping down these books that I haven't had a chance to read yet, and it's just kind of a dream come true. And I fell in love with the podcast, ended up hearing that John and B actually would be at a conference in the area, and I knew I had to be there. So I got to listen to, to both of you um, give your presentations, and I got to hug both of you, and it was like a dream come true. It was the best thing ever. <laughs> well, it was definitely a dream come true for me as well, and I do feel safe speaking for B, as epistemically <laughs> unjust as it may be to do so, that it was a dream for him too. <laughs> awesome. Um, so that's when you were working on an NCCC project when you and I met Izzy. Could you maybe we could get into the interview by you telling the audience what sort of projects and what sort of organization you're working with now. Sure. So I'm currently serving in a different AmeriCorps program, this one called VISTA, which stands for Volunteers in Service to America, which I think is a pretty snazzy title. Um, the mission of VISTA is to alleviate poverty by uh, building capacity in organizations across the country. And what that means is I am working with a, a nonprofit organization here in Hazard, Kentucky, which is in eastern Kentucky in the Appalachian part of the state. And my job is to serve with this organization for a year, uh, doing what AmeriCorps calls indirect service. So my, my job is to help the organization achieve more. And um, a couple of the ways that I'm doing that is... Uh, through a lot of communications-based things. So we're redesigning our website, um, as well as organizing some regional trainings that will um, help us as an organization increase the organizational capacity of other organizations. So it's kind of like the best multiplier effect situation in the world, and I'm pretty jazzed about it. <laughs> That's great. Um, now, when you started the VISTA program... Um, so you mentioned to me before we started recording that you grew up in Kentucky and you for a little while at least bought into the UF to, elite, to leave to achieve some other things. And now you're back in Kentucky. What was that particular process like for you in terms of thinking about kind of connecting to particular communities and working with communities? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it's been a long process. I didn't leave Kentucky by choice, I wouldn't say. Um, as a lot of Kentuckians, Appalachians, rural people around the world, I would imagine, um, I, I was kind of forced out for economic reasons. You know, I was young at the time, so it wasn't a choice of my own. We went where the work was. And in my family's case, it kind of sent us further and further south. Um, and this was happening around the time of um, the housing bubble and the financial crisis. It was really interesting to live a lot of these things that were, you know, affecting people all over the country and the world. So um, I end up not in Kentucky. Um, and finally, I'm able to come back. And um, I 
by this point had a college degree and I was excited to maybe get a job, try to start a career, things of that nature. And it still didn't quite work out. You know, I had, I had done the thing that people raised me to believe I had to do, you know, do the school, get the credentials, whatever. And I was back and still things weren't working. So, um, I end up in NCCC. I end up traveling. I end up continuing to look for a way to um, kind of find a meaningful way to occupy my time, you know, a way to give back. And um, finally, it an opportunity opened up here in Kentucky, and I'm back. And one of the most important things that happened to me when I was outside of Kentucky is that I started um, really um, studying, I guess, Appalachian literature, um, you know, a lot of people hear about bell hooks, for example, when they go off to college, and I, I was certainly one of those people. And um, hearing the way that she talked about her experience in Kentucky and outside of it, and why she finally chose to come back to Kentucky, um, really resonated with me. And um, I don't know, that was one of a lot of reasons that I, I guess, growing up, you know. Um, I wasn't taught to value place. In fact, I, I'd say that I was explicitly discouraged from valuing place in the sense that the place that I lived, according to whomever, wasn't quite good enough and that we had, I had to be in a different place to, to uh, have a, a shot at anything, I guess. But, right. Um, and so then, of, yeah. go, no, go ahead. Please finish. I was going to say there are a lot of different ways at looking at place and um, Bell is one of the people who have kind of shown that to me. So now I'm back here trying to figure out, I don't know how I can kind of share that with other people. Right. And I mean, it's that kind of question of what's this place mean? How does one, you know, become in a place with others? Would you say that's something that is informing your work, something you're thinking about, something that's kind of like this feeling that you have as you're going about working with this community organization and connecting to other community organizations. Like, what does that kind of do for you in your kind of day-to-day experiences right now? I feel like um, it helps make things make more sense. Um, it's really interesting, you know, I kind of came to place a little later, kind of through like an academic, like literary kind of path, but, um, it's amazing to be in this place here, Appalachia, Eastern Kentucky, and see how other people from all different walks of life relate to it. You know, you don't have to go to college and study place and, you know, read these dense texts and things to have an appreciation for where you live and the types of people who live there. And that's really evident in a lot of institutions in the state of Kentucky and I'm, I'm sure throughout the region. Um, one example, um, the Kentucky Arts Council, I am really involved with them more personally than professionally because I'm interested in the ways that art and culture contribute to a sense of place. And there are a lot of organizations that are trying to use that as, I guess, some of them are trying to use it for economic development. I'm more interested in the cultural development side of it, so not necessarily trying to capitalize on culture, but trying to use it as kind of like a public good, you know, something that we don't necessarily have to buy and pay for, but that gives us energy and motivates us and things like that. And it grounds us to where we are. So. 
the arts council is really into folklore and documenting folk practice and it's empowering to me that so many people can be artists and that um they can be recognized at, at a state level you know and beyond and celebrated and they don't have to go to art school for example or um, uh, any of these other like really classist and kind of elitist things that these narratives that that I feel like I kind of grew up believing and stuff like that. So um, this place in particular, um, and you know, I, I think of Belle again um, in one of her essays, uh, "Kentucky Is My Fate." She's talking a lot about how uh, the anarchic roots of Appalachia and her experience there and how um that led to a lot of self-determination you know being um kind of excluded from um certain narratives led to the space to develop one's own and i i see a lot of that happening in kentucky and i think that that's really important in this day and age of totalizing global narratives and ever connected um media and things of that nature now uh, absolutely um to maybe kind of pursue that a little bit i was hoping that maybe to resist those forces that you identify um if you could try to give us you know as limited as we're going to be able to experience it through you know headphones or whatever mm -hmm. a sense of the place that you're currently in what is the you know what is the place like what are the people like and how do people and nature and other like things we might think about in terms of place uh, relate to one another specifically where you are like try to give us a sense of what this place is maybe for you yeah uh i i will try to rise to the challenge <laughs> i i like the idea um one of the most important parts of the place for me are the mountains which are everywhere and I feel hugged by them in a way that makes me feel really grounded and secure, and I love it. You can't really go anywhere without seeing the mountains. Um, and tied really closely to the mountains is the mist. Um, Appalachia is a very moist place. And it, it's not a rainforest. It doesn't rain all the time, but we often get low fogs, and there's often cloud cover. Um, I missed the, the super blood moon, for example, because it was cloudy, which... Um, I was a little bummed about, but, you know, that's all right. Because the clouds are a part of this place. So um, I appreciate this so much more than a cityscape or some of the other landscapes I found myself in um, because it feels somewhat uh, un unadulterated and untamed in a, in a way that encourages me. Um, because there are mists and mountains and things are spread out, um, travel is, is kind of a constant theme. You know, how do people get around? Uh, a lot of people walk, a lot of people drive. There isn't a lot of public transit, but that's okay. You know, people get by without it. Um, so there's time to travel through this landscape to see different parts of it and to have a relationship with a lot of it. I, I would, you know, I'm, I'm no expert on this, but I would imagine that, uh, people in this area have perhaps wider circles, uh, wider migratory patterns, ranges, if that makes any sense, um, than, than other places, kind of out of necessity. You know, you have to travel to get groceries or travel to work or any number of things. Right. Um, 
to maybe even go a little bit kind of deeper than into trying to get feel for the texture of, of where it is you are and what it is you're doing. What's kind of like a typical day like for you and working at this community organization and talking with people about what it means to do capacity building work or community or public service work? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, a typical day uh, for me as a VISTA uh, involves a lot of, um, I would say, inventiveness in the sense that, um, you know, I don't necessarily have um, a ton of organizational knowledge. I'm new to my organization, and I don't necessarily have a ton of resources. You know, it's kind of on me to to develop my own tools and then use them to um, to help build the organization. So, um, what that comes down to a lot is trying to uh, learn from the people in my organization who you know have been in this community a lot longer than I have, doing this work a lot longer. Um, and to try to take from my perspective and propose things, um, that are conducive to the mission, um, but that, you know, perhaps wouldn't happen if I weren't here. Um, and I don't know, it, uh, it's, it's definitely a balancing act. Um, I... <laughs> I don't know. It, it can be tough because I really want to listen to everybody here and um, at the same time not lose my sense of self. You know, I feel like I have something con to contribute, but I try to put that behind listening and I don't know, I have to come back to it being, being a balancing act for sure. Right. And I think maybe related to that, or at least what it makes me think of, as it seems to me what you're describing is in part um, almost a process of translation, right? From the, from the, the program language that you get, um, you do a great video series, and one of your videos that you specially pointed me to is you kind of talking through the program language that you get um, from AmeriCorps, from VISTA, and then how then that relates to the actual work that you do in the community. So could you maybe talk about what that process of translation from um, programmatic language or administrative language into how you interact with people in place, how that goes for you, what that's like? It's a really fun challenge for me because I'd call myself a big, big nerd. You know, I like um, looking at this text that has been developed by VISTA, this national organization tied to the government in close partnership with my organization, which is, you know, uh, an established nonprofit here in the area. Um, so there's this text that I, I have inherited. It's, it's my job description. It's the mission that I've been given in this year. And my, my task is to interpret it, to give it life, to, to take action on it. Um, some aspects of it are a lot easier and take less interpretation than others, less translation. Um, but it's, it's kind of a, a daily process. You know, I look back and think back to, to these, these words that give my position legitimacy and, um, you know, have kind of brought me to this place and this organization to do this work. Um, and I, I enjoy the, the challenge of trying to, um, 
take what can be very technical or even sometimes vague language and applying that to to everyday situations. Right. Now, how did that look for you in terms of, you know, you have a, a background as a Kentuckian, but you're not from this particular community. And what was it like then for you, but also your sense of what was it like for other members of the community to in you and them to come together? Yeah, um, I am lucky in the sense that I am kind of um, joining a, a lineage of vistas here in this community. Um, there have been several vista cycles before me, so the community understands the program and understands um, the challenges that that we face and what it's like having vistas around. So I come to this community and people are like, "Oh, you must be a vista." You know, they can kind of tell by the ways that I spend my time. You mm -hmm. know, the organizations I'm involved with, and I I'm so thankful that this community is so accepting and so supportive. Um, and I try very hard, um, as I was trying to say earlier to, um, to listen very well and to, to learn how to be a part of this community. Um, I grew up close to here. Um, and I, when I moved here, I was really proud to tell people that, but, um, it's not here, you know, and, and that matters around here. And so it was, it was really interesting to learn that, you know, feeling like I, I came from close to here, but having close not always be enough for, for some people I've met. Right. Um, Which gets back to kind of what you were saying earlier about the notion of place, right? That like that being so embedded in a place, you know, the mountains and the mist aren't the same where you came from as where you are right now. Exactly. And on top of the mountains and the mist are the the family uh -huh. legacies. Um, you know, people have been living in these mountains for generations, and um, there's this um, definite intimacy that um, people kind of stereotype rural areas as having. But um, I've I've seen a lot of it here beyond stereotypes. Yeah. Um, now you kind of mentioned a minute or two ago. Um, the process of, of listening. And I was wondering if you had any examples that, or, or instances that came to mind or moments that, that you thought of um, that kind of exemplify what that process is and how that's maybe informed the way you approach a particular project or aspect of your projects. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I listening was a much more formal part of my last AmeriCorps program, which was a lot more structured. Um, we were required to um, do a lot of research on our communities. Excuse me. Excuse me. Before we entered them, and there were like reporting processes when we were in them. Now, VISTA um, is much different in that regard in the sense that we're kind of just um, sent to our communities and left to our own devices. Now, that's not entirely true. We do get a lot of support from the organization. But um, what I've done is try to um, take the lessons I learned in my last AmeriCorps program, where I got a lot of chances to enter different communities and listen to different people, learn from different people. And um, one of the ways that I, I put those lessons into action is um, by asking a lot of questions. Uh, I was actually reflecting on this kind of recently um, because I've been, you know, 
talking to so many different people in so many different parts of the country for um, the duration of my AmeriCorps experience, I feel kind of like I have similar conversations. And, you know, the people are never the same, and the subject is never the same, and the context is never the same, but they're similar in that they're kind of those um, questions that maybe close friends don't ask all the time, because maybe they asked previously, maybe they think they know the answer, but I still think it's worth asking these questions because we as individuals change, we as communities change, and I personally try pretty hard to you know, update, um, if that makes any sense, my, my understanding of where people are. So um, I, to get even more explicit, you know, I've, I've been very vague in this response, but I was um, speaking to a friend who grew up with both, uh, okay, so um, coal mining has been huge in this region forever, I would say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and with it comes a, a long, rich, and rough labor history. And I was speaking to a friend who, you know, I, I've met a couple of times, we, we know each other a little bit, but suddenly we were in this conversation and I'm learning that this person grew up um, with both scabs and labor organizers in their family. And I'm just blown away. And, you know, I get the opportunity to to hear what that's like, to ask questions, to engage with with that incredible and mind-blowing situation that, that wasn't just a situation, it was a lived reality. And um, I, I had never thought what that would be like, but at the same time, it makes sense that, you know, um, there are going to be people on, on all sides of an issue, especially in communities that, that may be small, that may, um, not, um, have a lot of out migration in migration. I don't know. Um, I, that, that was one situation where I, I felt like, I had somehow asked the right questions, but also to go back to how welcoming this community is, I had been trusted enough to hear that, you know, this person didn't have to open up to me, didn't have to, you know, tell me that, but I, I am, again, I'm so thankful that people do share really intimate, really things that I take very seriously, things that mean a lot to me. Yeah. Um, are there any particular projects that your organization is working on or that other organizations in the area are working on that are especially exciting to you right now? Um, one of the ones that I'm most excited about is the River Arts Greenway here in Hazard, Kentucky. Um, I was actually just speaking to a friend about that earlier this evening. And uh, I have to admit I'm extremely biased in this response. <laughs> One of the reasons it's exciting to me is because it gave me the opportunity to participate in uh, a public art competition just recently. Um, the River Arts Greenway is dedicated um, to not only bringing our community here in Hazard um, closer to our landscape, it's, and the way it's doing that is by building a trail along the river downtown to... You know, it's um, it has a mission of downtown revitalization, and it's doing it with 
kind of um, outdoor recreation and art at the same time, which is, it just blows my mind. You know, there are a lot of amazing elements that I really enjoy in this project. And um, the organization hosted a welding rodeo where three teams um, competed to weld um, sculptures out of scrap metal to be placed along this, this greenway, um, which is some of the first public art we've had here for a while. And I had the opportunity to be a part of it. I, the reason I'm so biased and, and loved it so much is because it's not every day that I get to weld as a capacity building vista. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're doing a lot more um, kind of organizational, nonprofit kind of like office type work. So I got to get out of the office. I got to weld. I got to um, work with a lot of amazing local artists and build something that's going to, you know, be there and um, be something for people to look at for, for a while to come. So Yeah, and, I, and there's a video of that in, on, your, on yes. your vlog on YouTube that we will link to, I promise. Yes, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, all right, so now I'm going to ask you a question that you actually asked us on the podcast once upon a time. Um, <laughs> and that is a question about what, you know, the connection and or disjuncture and or relationship between theory and praxis means and kind of how that plays out in your life and the way that you think about the work that you're doing. So maybe a slightly modified question of the question you posed to us way back when. Yeah, I thank you very much for asking me. I actually went back and listened to that episode to prepare for our interview. So it's fresh on my mind. Um, I, I really appreciate the wisdom that everybody gave to me when I asked that question. And to return to it personally now, um, I feel like I'm a bit more embedded on the praxis side of this false binary we've mm-hmm. created than, than I would like to be. Um, I haven't been doing as much reading as and reflection as I'd like. I don't necessarily feel like I could go, um, I don't know, engage in a really deep discourse with someone at, at a bar, which is, which is one of the ways that um, in, in a previous episode, y'all talked about, you know, navigating this yeah, theory yeah. and practice. <laughs> I think I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, you know, that would be a ton of fun, but I, I'm not exactly up to speed on my theory. And um, I, I struggle with that. And one of the ways that I try to try to mitigate that is by listening to this podcast, is by you know reading articles, is by um, trying to supplement the work that I'm doing that sucks up a lot of my time and energy, keeps me very busy with kind of this um, you know uh, reflective theoretical work. In addition, um, so. I, so far in my life, I feel like I haven't found the golden mean, if there is such a thing. (laughs) Um, College, for example, undergrad was too theoretical for Mm me. Um, I, I felt kind of guilty to be sitting in a classroom and like learning all the time when there were a lot of people in this country, in this world who, who weren't doing that. And now that I'm outside of the classroom uh, doing, you know, this quote-unquote praxis, 
I, I'm thinking, well, gee, you know, it, it would be nice to have more time to discuss these, these complicated, you know, the implications of, of this action that I'm taking. Um, I haven't figured out how to do both at once. So I kind of go back and forth between them. I have phases that are more theoretical and phases that are more uh, practical. Right. But um, going back to the idea, you know, I think you started answering that question by talking about it being somewhat of a false binary, you know, and I mean, I think that that's right. And I think that actually, like, you know, as I, you know, watch your videos online or now that I get the chance to talk to you about the things you're doing, you know, I mean, you're, you're, you're creating theory about place in a way that's much more connected to the praxis side of it you know, than, like, me sitting in a, you know, windowless room in a building in New York City, like, pontificating about place is going to be, actually be able to do, right? So it seems to me that regardless of, like, how much, you know, time there is for reflection or something, that, like, when, you know, you're doing or now that we're talking about it, like, you know, you're generating theory as much, if not more, than, like, people who are technically generating theory are doing. Yeah. I, I'm really glad you bring that up. And I have to admit that I detest binaries. So <laughs> I, I would love to, you know, smash this one between theory and practice in such a way that, that we can all do both to the, the degree that we want. But um, to go back to um, the question that I asked the podcast originally, uh, I brought up institutions. And I think the mode of production in terms of theory and praxis matters. I don't think that the theory that I produce in my current phase of practice can necessarily reach the same audiences and do the same work that you, for you, for example, your theory can. You know, I'm I'm not um, getting my 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 text that I create. You know, be it video or whatever things that I write into journals, for example, um, and it, I don't think, is treated in the same way. And I'm okay with that. I like that to a certain degree, you know? I, this era of uh, paywalls and, you know, there's a really interesting article just this week about um, what it takes to review an article, you know, what sort of scientific standards people hold the science the social sciences too. Um, I think that that matters. I think that um, I don't necessarily think that it, it should matter, but I think that people outside of academia are still isolated from certain aspects of it. And I hate that. <laughs> and I yeah. wish that there was something I could do about that. And that's one of the reasons that I'm excited that this podcast exists, because I feel like it helps break that down, you know? Like, y'all are within this institution, and you're thinking about it, and you're talking about it, and most importantly, you're sharing that in the digital commons, where I, you know, across the country doing something completely different, can listen to it, can engage with it. And I didn't have that opportunity before I found this podcast, and you know, 10 years ago, whatever, before podcasts, were there as many accessible opportunities to do this? I'm not sure. You know, here we are Skyping all the way across the country, participating in this conversation. And I love it. I'm excited about it. And I hope that um, we can continue to, um, I don't know, 
diffuse theory and praxis, you know, the thing that people have been trying to do for generations, that we can break down these walls and increase access and, I don't know, do what we want. Yeah, and I mean, my, my, my hope and, you know, I've been, had the absolute pleasure of listening, of listening to you talk about this for the last however many minutes. Um, <laughs> I, I, I hope and I think that, uh, that this little, little chat we've had here goes some way to doing that. I hope so too. <laughs> um, so Izzy, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I'm so I'm so happy that you we ran into each other and met in Las Vegas, and now that we're talking over Skype from uh, from different environments and places ourselves. John, thank you so much for doing everything that you do. Um, it means so much to me, and I'm sure a lot of other people. And um, also, shout out to everybody who's been involved with Always Already. Uh, it means a lot to me. Thank All right. You. Well, big, big e-hugs until the next time we're in the same physical <laughs> space for them to be yeah. real. <laughs>